Well, uh, welcome to another interview uh, held by uh, EFSAS. And this time we have with us uh, Mr. Timothy Foxley, who uh, first and foremost is uh, an EFSAS research fellow. Uh, but apart from that, he's an independent consultant specializing in uh, political and military analysis and research. Uh, he currently lives in Malmo in, in Sweden. He has worked for the British government as a defense, defense analyst for uh, over a decade. Uh, he has studied Afghanistan, the region, and associated conflict teams since 2001. Uh, much of his time he has spent as the, uh, at the uh, UK Ministry of Defense, uh, where he received an, um, an MBE, which is a member of the British... Uh, what is it, British Order Empire? <laughs> well, well, yes, we, we could talk about the Great Game straight away. It's, it's, it's an MBE, which is a member of the British Empire. British Empire, okay. So the colonial... It's not the most modern of terminologies, I have to admit. No. Uh, you've also worked at uh, for the Swedish Ministry of Defence and uh, for the uh, well-known um, uh, institution think tank, uh, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, better known as CIPRI. Uh, currently, or you know, recently, you, you've also engaged in providing expertise on Afghanistan to UK uh, lawyers uh, defending Afghan uh, asylum seekers. And um, in addition, you have broadened your uh, broadened your uh, canvas uh, by also engaging in studies of Eastern Europe, the Balkans, and Russia-related security teams. I'm sure there must be coming in handy at the moment, uh, the Russian uh, security teams. Um, and you've also done two uh, operational tours in, 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 in Bosnia uh, during the 90s when it was uh, uh, at war. Um, so, uh, Mr. Timothy Foxley, welcome. Thanks, Junaid. Uh, but, but call me Tim. It's, it's, only, it's only my mother calls me Timothy when I've done something uh wrong. <laughs> Well, as the viewers might have uh, might have guessed, this this is going to be mostly about Afghanistan. But we're going to give it a bit of a twist that we all know the situation in Afghanistan um, since uh, Taliban's takeover, the security situation, and the human rights situation. So, uh, I personally uh, thought that uh, delving too much into that is nothing new. We're mostly going to talk about its regional impacts and its historical. Um, you know, uh, relevancy. Uh, but before we come to that, um, as we uh, always start off, how come, uh, Mr. Foxley, you as someone from London originally, end up being uh, an Afghan expert? Where, where does this come from? Well, Janelle, I mean, I, I still, I mean, I, I know I've studied Afghanistan for, for 20, over 20 years. I still struggle with the word expert. I mean, it, it's such a it's such a diverse, complex subject, and I've I've come in at one part of, of of the history of Afghanistan, and it'll it'll move on when I'm when I'm long gone. Um, but I mean, first of all, thanks for thanks for having me. I mean, I've I've seen I've seen some of the interviews that, you, that you've you've hosted, and I've seen the array of people that you've interviewed. So I'm I'm humbled and privileged. To be asked to be in the same forum as, as your as your previous speakers, um, I and I, and I wondered when I, when I looked at some of your speakers, I wondered if I'm maybe the only person that didn't choose to study Afghanistan. It it, it very much came to me uh, by accident, and and this is I mean as I've thought about this over the years, 
it's one of the problems that we have in international relations and in, and in, in conflict uh, security issues that when when a crisis comes up in the world the world is not necessarily ready for it um and the day the day before 911 uh, at that point in time i would have considered myself a russian analyst studying the russian army the russian ground forces um and before that i've been looking at wider european eastern european issues i've been as the balkans as you said i've looked at eastern europe the, the the breakup of the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union countries, and, and the selection of conflicts um, connected with, with, with that part of the world. So before 9-11, I, I mean, I knew a little bit about Afghanistan. I knew that the, the British tended to go there and get defeated and have to have to retreat. Um, you know, that's, that's my, my crudest understanding. I knew the term the great game. I didn't really know the depth, the depth of it. And I, I, I came into this this environment by accident uh, after 9-11 and, and I suspect why well, I, I know that a lot of Western and American analysts found themselves in the same situation as me we, we, we hadn't chosen mm -hmm. Afghanistan you know it, it happened you know bin Laden 9-11 and and suddenly days weeks later they were, you know in in every in every analytical kind of capital in Western Europe everyone's going who's who's the Afghan analyst do, mm -hmm. do we have any uh, and the answer is no, we didn't. I mean, we had a. If you were lucky, you had some South Asia analysts looking at uh, India, Pakistan. Um, there were some, I guess, like counter-terrorist groups, and particularly the Americans and, and the CIA, who were looking at this 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 Bin Laden chap who who'd, who'd embedded himself uh, with his history uh, of, of supporting the Mujahideen in the eighties. He was now in in Afghanistan, you know, plotting. But you know, that was more the counter-terrorist side. So when um, when nine eleven happened, and suddenly the you know the world spotlight was was directed on, onto Afghanistan, there weren't many, there wasn't much expertise on, on Afghanistan. There was you know there's the CIA long term counter terrorist Bin Laden Al Qaeda bit, but uh, for for the rest of us kind of you know, inverted commas normal analysts, there was no expertise. And I was uh, and this is and this and this is really important to understand. The West's response, not just the British and the Americans, but how the West dealt with dealt with this, this situation, because as we know, it, it didn't it didn't go very well. You know, twenty years mm -hmm. of effort and blood and treasure and, and such like, and it and it's, and it's worked out terribly. Um, but I was so we had no Afghan expertise. I was I was summoned one day and said, "You're now you're now doing Afghanistan," uh, and this would be October two thousand one. And I said, OK, and I reported to uh, someone's a very good friend of mine now, my, my boss, um, and said, I'm I'm apparently studying the Afghan ground forces because I had that sort of background from from from, from the Balkans, you know, Bosnia. Um, and and he said, OK, that's that's great. You're, you're the only one we have at the moment. Um, and I said, well, I, I better I better start looking at the files, you know, reading up, you know, like 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 any any analyst, you want to dig into the files, you know, immerse yourself and work out what which way is up. So I said, um, I'd better start looking at the files then. And he he said, um, what files would they be then? And I said, oh, surely we have some files on Afghanistan. It's been a bit of a theme for the eighties and the nineties. You know, surely someone's been studying it. And he said, he said, no, not not really. It's it's 
as he said it, it you know for all that time it was someone else's war there was no british involvement we didn't have any troops there we we had an embassy but that that pulled out um so there was no there was no background reading that i that i could do um so my my first exposure to afghanistan was was an extremely painful learning curve and i can, I can show you I've, I've primed my my prop here this is this is the first book that I got. No, actually, I tell a lie. I always say this is the first book. It's not. The, the first one I got was Michael Griffin, Reaping the Whirlwind. Uh, but they were they were out at more or less the same time. But this is the one that I've, I mean, it's, it's well thumbed and battered mm. and such like now. Are you, are you really saying that in, in, in October 2001, the UK Ministry of Defence had almost nothing to read on Afghanistan? <laughs> Um, I am pretty much saying that, yeah. And 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 I, in the in the context, as it was explained to me, in the context, I can understand it because it it was someone else's war. I mean, we, I mean, it, it's not fair to say there was no one looking at it at all, but it was a very narrow resource priority. You know, analysts are constantly overstretched. Mm. There are different priorities in the world, as we now we can see with. Um, with Ukraine, Russia has taken all all the attention from Afghanistan, uh, and I'm sure when you know when when China goes into Taiwan, everyone will, everyone will look over there, and I'm sure people will go, okay, who's the who's the Taiwan expert, and and, mm. uh, and they'll go, well, I don't know. <laughs> have I do I do, I do think you're, you you're being too modest here because you of course consider yourself not an expert, but you were good enough to 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 receive an MBA for your Afghan work. Um, so, you know, I, I do think you, you're being a bit too modest uh, and you'll be working now on it for more than 20 years. Yeah, well, no, you're absolutely right. Jay. All, I'm, all I'm saying is, is that, you know, I had a lot of a lot of um, professional experience looking at, at crisis zones and conflicts. And, um, you know, so you, you you rely on that sort of background analytical experience and you just dive in and you read and you research and you speak to people on the ground where you can and you I, you know i spend i spend a lot of time nagging my my bosses and my bosses bosses to um to be allowed to get out there um to spend as much time on the ground as i could just to you know absorb and get a get a sense you know i i'd never set foot in afghanistan before i didn't know that much about it but it, but it's it's definitely possible, you know. If you're given a task, you've got to find out about this country. You've got to be able to br brief a general or a politician or a diplomat. You've got to be able to brief them, you know, in a couple of days' time. You immerse yourself, and it's it's um it's a painful learning curve. But it's but it's it's not not impossible. But I think I think the wider point I'm trying to make, and and, and this is every so often I give a lecture at Mama University, like as a guest speaker, we talk about Afghanistan. And, and what, I, what I really learned from that time is at the time when an international crisis blows up, and, and then in 2001, it was, it was Al-Qaeda and, and Afghanistan, but it could just as well have been the Balkans before that. And it's certainly Russia, Ukraine now, and it could well be China, Taiwan, um, or, you know, it could be North Korea. I mean, at, at a time when a crisis erupts, normally it takes everyone by surprise. And normally there aren't a lot of analysts or they're spread very thinly. So at a time, so my contention with Afghanistan 20 years back is at the time 
when the most, some of the most important international decisions are made by the Americans, by the Brits. Do, you know, do we, I don't know, do we, do we attack? Do we invade? Do we do airstrikes? Do we just do nothing? Do we, uh, you know, th there's a whole range of, of, of strategic options you can take. At a time when these sort of big decisions have to be made right at the start of a crisis, it's, it's at the time when the countries making these decisions probably know least about the country. And that, I, know, I know I struggle with that now, and I find that it's, it's still it's still quite a tough lesson that I have to I have to think think about. But the the early decisions were were not driven by a lot of analytical expertise. There was some, and there was a lot of experience. People had, had worked in conflicts before, and people who had looked at you know Al Qaeda and such like. But that's that's my my. My main takeaway from that from that early period, it, a lot of your decisions, you're, you're, you're making the best assessments you can. You're making the most impartial, independent analysis you can do. But there's there's at that point there was a certain limit to the amount of information and understanding you have. That 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 that's that's what I that's what I, I always reflect on that now after twenty years. And I yeah, I mean you're right. I can consider myself, you know, something of, a, of an expert now. Um, but for the first, my first, I don't know, two, two or three years, it was it was unrelenting hard work, reading, 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 all the overtime, all the hours, trying to get into Afghanistan when I could and trying to understand what is a very complicated situation. Uh, obviously, you know that, and, and fast moving at the time. And I do remember, and again, maybe this wasn't the right way of approaching it, but at the time, the, the Brits and, and a lot of Western Europe, we've been involved in the Balkans, in Bosnia, and, and had you know, some experience of like, peacekeeping operations. And at the time, there was some kind of thinking that, you know, maybe Afghanistan is a bit like the Balkans, but a bit bigger. You know, they had the ethnic tensions, they had the religious tensions, they had the warlords, they had the sort of the regions. Um, and and some, of our, some of our briefing maps, we used to superimpose to, to give to give military commanders the context, we would we would have a map on a PowerPoint slide. We'd have a map of Afghanistan, the outline, and then we would we would superimpose uh, an outline of the United Kingdom. So you know, so if Dutch troops are going out, they'd probably have a you know the Netherlands and so like you'd have a, you'd have a, an outline map of the UK, and we'd then put an outline map of, of Bosnia as well to give a British military, British MOD, British officials. That's that was the kind of reference point that they could they could start to to sort of dig into to understand at the very least to understand the scale of the problem. The scale was much greater than the Balkans. It's much more complicated, much more violent. But that was that was some of the starting point um, ways we had to 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 understand it. And I'm sure all the Western European countries approached it in that sort of way. We didn't have many analysts that that really knew the region. Uh, and you're reaching back into your your other analytical experiences and you're reaching back. What was the last conflict we did? What were the challenges we had then sort of thing? Um, so, and, so and, and, and every conflict is, of course, uh, different. And this one has, uh, like we just discussed before we went uh, on to doing this interview, um, it seems as if indeed, and that's going to be the main theme of this interview is, of course, the, the the regional 
and global impacts of the situation in Afghanistan and how important Afghanistan is. And then we always come back because it seems as if there is a new great game uh, going on. Uh, and, and, and we always come back to the official original great game of, uh, um, of long ago, which I think would be a good introduction. And of course, you, you're not a historian, but you know uh, enough of it, would be a good introduction to jump off uh, towards where we are situated now. So, so just for the, for the audience in a brief, what is the, what is, what, what is the great game? What, what was the great game? Well, I think I think it's what is, <laughs> Junaid. <laughs> there were there've been different episodes of the Great Game, but the, the, I guess again, my caveat is that I'm not a historian on this, but I have read quite a bit. The Great Game, capital G, capital G, as we understand it, was this period in the I guess the 17th, 18th, 19th century, where where Afghanistan was. Um, it was the boundary between a lot of competing regional interests from the mm. north and the south, the, the east and the west. And particularly that focused around the, the British Empire, back to the empire again, um, who, who at that point in time, the, the jewel in the crown of the British Empire was, was India. Um, obviously, this is before, before Pakistan. So all that region was, was, was India. Uh, and it was a very lucrative uh, possession for for. Great Britain, uh, and I have to I have to make sure I don't say we all the time because that that's that's losing my my impartiality. But, but the British Empire was, was uh, I mean, it's, but it's a serious point there, Janet. Sometimes you know you you have these. It's what I learned in you know analyst school. You have these unconscious biases that, yeah. that can affect your analysis. And so you you're know, also a member of the British Empire, so that makes it even more. Yeah, important. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Well, sometimes most of the battle is being aware of your of your weaknesses and your your, your biases, um, and yeah. So, so yes, we, we've already exposed my my, my sort of contradictions. Um, but the British Empire was exceptionally keen to preserve and protect the boundaries of the empire and not allow external interference. Um, and I guess the the biggest concern at that point was the Russian Empire. Which was particularly in the, in the the early mid nineteenth centuries, so the eighteen hundreds, was expanding southeast. You know, if you like, from Moscow through what we now know as Central Asia, expanding and expanding towards towards <coughs> India. Uh, you know, every 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 couple of years, five years, ten years, um, the Russian Empire they would they would absorb or they would bring into their sphere of influence another Akhanate, uh, a little warlord region, a, a, a principality, a prince area. Um, so they were slowly, um, you know, when, when you look back at it over a few decades, they were getting closer and closer to India. Uh, and the Russian mm -hmm. Empire was seen, you know, I, th I think I think rightly, but, but was seen as a, as a great potential threat to the, uh, the British Empire. So there were a lot of military and political machinations from the British part and the Russian part to try and bring, uh, to try and establish a ruler in Afghanistan that was favourable, either either to the British or to the Russians, depending on which diplomat was was doing uh, you know the, the manoeuvrings, uh, to try and ensure that that Afghanistan was a secure, stable, and favourable to to the British. Um, and this, I mean, because of the, I mean, Afghanistan, it, it wasn't. 
it was more of a region of, of different we use the word warlords now but it was different regions and, and different different powerful uh princes uh carnates and such like um so it was always a bit tricky to to kind of get one ruler that was suitable to the british or or to the russians or whatever we'll talk about the british the british are mainly driving this it was difficult to get uh, a ruler uh, a king that could be put on the throne and say right this is the king of, of afghanistan and He's favourable to, to the British, um, and and kings were were came and went. They were deposed, or they were assassinated. There were machinations. The brothers were, were manipulating, so it was an intense, great game. Uh, and there were British politicians in and out of Kabul, trying to trying to you know bring influence to bear. And there were Russians doing the same sort of thing, and other external players as well. So this 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 kind of great game ended up in. Um, Several several conflicts have been fought in Afghanistan, uh, and I mean, from the British point of view, we were involved in in three wars in Afghanistan. The first one was was eighteen thirty nine to forty two, which culminated in the in the famous um, massacre retreat, the British Army's retreat from Kabul, um, which and this is one of these sort of um, this is the, again this is a back to your analytical biases in 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 British mythology. There was one survivor from a from a force of I don't know how many it was now. It was several thousand, maybe tens of thousands of British soldiers retreating from Kabul in winter to Jalalabad. Um, and at the end of this retreat, there was only one survivor left. Now that's not entirely true because there were there were several thousand native troops fighting with the British who also survived. But you know, again, the British Empire kind of mythology at the time was you focus on the the Western European man who survived. Uh, and that, and that therein comes the myth. But it was a, it was a massive defeat, and the British sent in another force from from India into Afghanistan to crush that rebellion and wreak revenge. Um, for another war, tell me if this history is getting too much for you, Janet. We're just finish the point. We, we, we fought um, we fought another war in eighteen seventy nine eighty, and we fought another, I think, a smaller conflict in nineteen nineteen. And I and I'll just tell you my 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 slight comedy anecdote. I think the, I think the, I think the second time I went to Afghanistan, uh, it was two thousand and two. We were hosted by the the British general, the, who was head of ISAF then, John McCall. Uh, and it was it was before the ISAF headquarters was a massive complex with ice cream machines. It was it was just kind of tense. Um, and he he told us he had um, he'd held a dinner for the Afghan government. I mean, warlords, Fahim Khan, I don't know if you remember, remember that name. Um, and, it, and he held a dinner on the, the anniversary of, of, of the Battle of Gandamak, which was during this retreat. And it was it was kind of like the last organised defence of the British army. We, I said we then, didn't I? The, the soldiers were surrounded. Uh, they had no ammunition left. They had the bayonets. They fought to the last. And then they were overwhelmed. And everyone was was killed, and it's it was a, it's a famous battle honour. I forget which British regiment fought there, but it's a famous battle honour, and the regiment celebrates Gandamak Day when they all stood as a, as a last stand. So I thought it was quite a nice touch. General McCall hosted a dinner for the Afghans for for Gandamak Day, so they they could celebrate the defeat of the British as well. But uh, but the point is that um, the the general, the British general McCall, hosting this dinner. And he said, and I think it was to Fahim Khan, he said, General, I, I, I do find it 
rather embarrassing coming coming to your country as a as a soldier you know in this sort these sort of circumstances you know bearing in mind we fought three wars in, in afghanistan and and fahim khan said but that, but that's okay because we beat you every time so i mean so i mean you get all these these echoes of history and and it it is that the great game is that classic period mid late 19th century um and and so so in a nutshell, it means that for big powers, regional or global powers, Afghanistan's strategic position, and maybe today it's its vast natural resources have always been very important. Um, and as you just mentioned, the great game has not ended. It's still going on. Perhaps we, we will get to the fact that maybe the actors have changed um uh in in terms of regional and global powers because i think it was in 2015 and not many people had written this then but you had and i found an article of yours uh you write in 2015 you said china might be looking to step up its involvement in afghanistan and if people the so-called experts of Afghanistan would have read this in 2015, they would have probably not taken you seriously. Um, but now today, uh, what is it, uh, six, seven, eight years later, uh, you've, you've proven your, you know, you've proven that you were right uh, almost a decade ago by saying that China might be looking to, to step up its involvement in Afghanistan. Is in this new context, uh, is China in this new great game? Is China Britain? <laughs> um, no, I don't, I don't think I, China is China. Um, I mean, Britain, Britain has has gone. I think. I mean, we had this 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 twenty years of, of trying to establish some form of you know, democratic process, which which has failed. Um, so I think Britain's, I mean, I mean, crudely, I think Britain's interest will, will, will wane. We'll want to, we'll want to stay there. I, you know, obviously for human rights, for women's rights, um, you know, we, the Brits will stay engaged, but we won't be bringing power to bear. We won't be bringing, you know, a large amount of money, uh, and a large amount of military presence that, that, that's all gone. China is, China is different, but, but I mean, you, to an extent you, you, you're right, but China is, is there. As, as was then when I was when I was looking at it, China is playing then was playing a very careful game. It it did understand the resources that are under the ground uh, in Afghanistan, and if you if you go back even a few years before that, there was a whole there was a whole period in the media, I think fueled by the Americans, 2010, 2009, 2011, when they were really highlighting the mineral resources. You know the, the natural gas, the resources under under the ground, and there was these figures being thrown around three trillion dollars worth of, of assets, and it wasn't it wasn't just lithium; it was a whole range of range of things, and there's emerald mines, and there's gold mines, and uh, and there's oil and gas, and there's there's all sorts of potential, um, but all and and the Chinese they established the the, the INAC copper mines. I don't know if that rings a bell. Which and it was it was helpful that I I you invited me to talk um, at the UN last last time because it forced me to to dig back into what you know what China was doing, um, and it seemed 
The Chinese have been very careful to avoid any any confrontation with the Taliban. I think they kept their heads down. Um, and just just to interrupt here, is that yeah, sure. is the avoidance of confrontation is that related to its economic interests or is it related to its security interest uh, in terms of the Uyghurs and a small portion of Chinese land bordering Afghanistan? And as you know, uh, the Uyghurs are of the same branch, the Sunni Muslim uh, branch, which the Taliban uh, adheres to. So uh, is, it, is it economic or is it those security? Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's both of those things. I think at the time, with the, the copper mines, the Uyghur issue, certainly in, in terms of the international community and the world's awareness, was less of, a, less of an issue. Um, so I think at that time, it was, it was, it was primarily economic. I think that might have changed. That might have changed now, but but so uh, the Chinese are still very interested in the economic potential. I think, I think the Taliban and the Chinese are both intelligent enough to make sure that the Uyghur issue doesn't become a thing, because mm -hmm. the Taliban and the Chinese both both need each other for this this next stage of the great game. I think this will be beyond copper mines. It'll be the lithium. It'll, it'll be things like that. But it hasn't happened yet. And I've seen I've seen a lot of the headlines. But there, there are, there's quite a few. There's, there's a bit of pushback. I mean, some of the American analysts saying, well, yeah, there's a lot of excitement about the mineral resources. But, you know, it's 10, 15 years on since we've had all this excitement and nothing has really happened yet. Nothing's really been exploited. So it might be easier now. Taliban have a better grip on the security situation. Maybe the Chinese can step up a bit. Uh, I think they'll both they'll both play the the Uyghur issue carefully. Uh, you know, I think the Taliban are concerned, obviously, but you know they need Chinese money and 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 the sort of the recognition and engagement that that, that comes with it. And and you know, it, I, I was just reading up on it because uh, a lot of things have happened over the past. You know, few years, but also also this year, like like we were discussing, in January this year, uh, Afghanistan's uh, administration, the Taliban, signed a contract with a Chinese state-owned company to extract oil uh, from the Amu Darya bas uh, basin uh, and develop an oil reserve in the country's uh, northern province. Then you have in. April this year, you have China offering the Taliban $10 billion. And as you know, the Taliban is quite cash, uh, in need of cash. $10 billion for the access to the country's lithium deposit, which we talked about, uh, which, according to many analysts, is worth around $1 trillion. And then just a month later, the Taliban has agreed with the Chinese and the Pakistanis, so this 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 triangle to extend the the Belt and Road Initiative to Afghanistan. Um, so so do you think that you know from what you have written in two thousand and fifteen, China might be looking to step up its involvement in Afghanistan? Has China now seriously arrived in Afghanistan and it's not going to go anywhere? Well, I think I think they are trying to arrive I, i'm still i'm still just a little bit i, I know what they want they the, the resources are there the fighting is largely finished the americans are gone now you know now is the chance but um but it, but again when i when i did that that talk for you earlier earlier this year i i became aware how i understood more clearly 
how poor the Chinese are at doing this sort of thing. Their contracts are very suspect, quite mm -hmm. corrupt. But, you know, they're not open to scrutiny. They didn't handle the, the iron at copper mine deals very well at all. I think they were there for a long time, but didn't really extract much copper. And I think there were question marks then over the quality of the contracts. Um, and, and, and also, again, I think this is mainly from Pakistan. Um, they're not very culturally sensitive. But, you know, if they if they bring laborers in and workers in, there's obviously potential for friction. Um, and, and, you know, I think, you know, when when the Western Europeans went into Afghanistan in a big, you know, the Brits and the Americans, we weren't very culturally sensitive, made a lot of mistakes. But we we I could say we um, but we were trying very hard to 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 understand the culture and the sensitivities and such like and the, and the sense i get again mainly from looking at some of the examples of the chinese in, in pakistan is that the chinese aren't very good at this and they and they can they can piss people off piss the locals off quite 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 easily is it uh, is it because and this is just you know is it that the chinese are not very good at it because they care less yeah I, well I, yeah i i, I think China's China's in Afghanistan for China's benefit, and mm -hmm. and and you can say that about any any country, you know. But but I think China's in there for its benefit. It wants to extract as much as it can mineral resources for for its own industries and its own its own purpose. I think it probably sees it probably sees the Taliban as quite desperate for, like you said, cash poor. They're desperate for cash, so we can probably sign some quick deals and we can give them a lump of money. But then we can, you know, we can start exploiting it. I don't... Is it easy for a, for a Chinese government? I would, I would say so. You know, I've, I've, I've read this mi a million times. For example, um, whenever the West and in in, in 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 previous decades, you know, many many analysts used to say, for example, in Pakistan, it's easier to deal with a military, uh, you know, governing the country than with a civilian government because it's too much going back and forth. Is it for an an entity like China, is Taliban also just easier to deal with because you have one guy you go to, you sign it, there are no parliaments, there are no, you know, upper houses, yeah. there is no... Yeah, no, I, th I think, I think ex exactly that. I mean, the, the, the Taliban aren't, aren't known for, for, for in-depth discussions. They're not known for, you know, complicated contracts. Um, and yeah, it'll be one person says it, there'll be a little bit of paper and, and they can get on with it. I think that I think they can. And the, the Chinese won't have to worry about environmental impacts and, and consideration for the local population. They won't have to kind of you know play nice with people and say, well, the Taliban have authorized it. The Taliban have got their big load of cash. Maybe the Taliban fighters will be in the area just to provide a bit of security. Um, it's so I, I'm, I'm a bit cautious about China's ability to do this, but I think definitely this is where they're going. This is what they want to do now. This this is the potential for China is 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 there. This is this is a good time for them, I think, because the West isn't going to be there in any kind of you know significant amount for a for a long time. Okay, and and this this what we just discussed it it, it reminds me of something I've written down the Taipei Times in February, and I would like to have your comment on this because it it may be encompassed. What, what we all discuss about, about, about Chinese involvement there and the region. And it says in, in, in an editorial in February 2023, it says China's transna transactional engagement with the Taliban lacks depth. 
As it stands today, Beijing only engaged the Taliban in a limited way to address its security concerns. Chinese engagement with regional countries, especially Pakistan, and in the international community on Afghanistan, seems half-hearted and driven by regional competition with India over influence. Is, is this a correct assessment? Oh, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't have any massive disagreement with, with that, I, I and mean, that's why I'm, I'm trying to play it a little bit cautious about China's. I mean, the, the, the press is now all saying all the lithium, the contracts have been signed, billions of dollars been signed to the, for the Taliban. Um, the Chinese have not have not made a lot of progress in Afghanistan, um, so I, I'm not. I struggle to see them making some rapid advancement. Yeah, I mean, I think that. that this is still back to the bigger picture with Afghanistan. Since the fall of since the fall of the previous government and the arrival of the Taliban, this is still quite a transitional period. I think this this kind of five year five year period, we're two years into the Taliban taking over, you know, maybe another two or three years, it's still quite um, quite a fluid situation. Um, I, I, the Chinese will will be risking, you know, if they go wholeheartedly into Afghanistan, there are still groups that could target them. Uh, and 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 just like is happening in Pakistan, yeah. But, but when it says here about regional competition with India, do you think the Indians are interested in playing this great game in Afghanistan with the Chinese? I don't. I, I'm I'm a bit less sighted on that, to be honest, Janaid. Uh, or, or I mean, India. I consider India as part of the great game. Abs absolutely. Um, and and the, the one the one time I, I wrote a paper on this over well over 10 years, maybe 15 years ago, when I looked at all the neighbors, all the all the kind of the regions and the near neighbors as well, you know, Russia and India. Um, they're, they're all part of the part of this process. And and Pakistan is in in Afghanistan for its strategic death, depth, and India is is in in Afghanistan partly to poke the Pakistanis, um, you know, a little bit of support for the former Northern Alliance or groups that you know the Tajiks and such. Um, yeah, I, I don't know enough about India, India, China, uh, India, China relationships, but yeah, it, it, it's all part of the process. Okay. And, and um, now coming back to, to, to its other neighbors, you have, of course, on one side, you have Iran, um, which has a Shia majority, which doesn't, you know, ogre well with uh, the Taliban's own interpretation. And then on the other hand, you have um, uh, you have Pakistan, which has considered by, by many, and, and you know, I think it's an open secret now after generals and, 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 and presidents have talked about that the Taliban was cultivated or this Mujahideen was cultivated by Pakistan intelligence agencies, perhaps a bit supported by Westerners, uh, in, in, you know, uh, four decades ago uh, and now you have this new phenomena um which is the the pakistani taliban um and it seems and again i'm this is i'm, I'm basing myself mostly on on newspaper reports but the afghans that we have interviewed which have also watched it seems in newspapers that that the taliban and the and pakistan the pakistanis are uh, fighting or are not in agreement over the Taliban's support to uh, the Pakistani Taliban. Um, do, you, do you agree with this? Have, have, have the tables turned? Or is this 
another part of a strategic depth which is being played out i i, I don't th i don't think the pakistani government have as much control over things as they as they'd like to believe uh, I think, and, and and you said this right at the start. There, there are a lot of painful ironies now and juxtapositions. Um, you know, now now the the, the TTP is in is in Afghanistan uh, and it's able to launch you know operations into Pakistan. And the other irony is that the the Taliban and now the government having to deal with you know counter terrorist operations or, or to, to to tackle uh, terrorist groups. So so. Pakistanis won't be able to deal with this. I, I saw most recently they're making making a few pointed comments towards the, um, the Taliban government um, that this needs to stop. But it's 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 the cliche. I mean, Pakistan has it's set up groups like the Taliban. It's enabled them. Um, they use it for their own for their own ends. But they can't absolutely control these these movements once they're once they're up and running. That, that for example, the Haqqani network. Is still part of the Taliban administration, which is known to be, you know, an extension as uh, what is it? The American general set of of Pakistan's security establishment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but I but I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how that how that changes. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a there's a there's a brutal kind of contradiction in in in, in a lot of the processes that we're seeing unfold at the moment. Um, yeah, you know, maybe the Americans will weigh in with a drone strike or two, and and you know, mm. stabilize it further. And do you do you think it's a it's a fifty fifty share, or how do you see that? You have you have of course the Taliban, you have the Haqqani network; these are the two biggest, and then you have many you know other organizations active in in Afghanistan. But these are the two biggest organizations which are administering Afghanistan. How do you see their shareholding in 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 the government? My, I might be wrong on this. My my, my sense that was that the Haqqani network wasn't was no longer as powerful as as that. I mean, you talked about a fifty fifty. I, I didn't think they were as as powerful. I thought this was more about Abdullah Akonzada and 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 this, you know the the, the clique of of Kandahari um, religious mm -hmm. leaders. And and I, and I and again I might be a bit out of date with this now, but my sense was that that the Carney side of things was had a much smaller um, little series of influences. Um, I might be wrong. Okay. The Interior Minister is still Hakani. yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Um, okay, you no, know, and then you know coming back uh, to 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 this terrorism conundrum, and of course as you said, this very you know. Ironic things happening that it was Afghan it was the Pakistanis who were you know engaging or supporting terrorism in Afghanistan and now the Pakistanis are blaming the Afghan or the Taliban for doing the same back in their country. Um, again, I read something very interesting on one of your posts, which you have written long ago, but you said that you were part of an, an, a seminar um, holded by a Danish think tank, I guess in which um, the well-known um, uh, Pakistani military expert, Atika, was also there. And one of the myths she described there, um, which included in your article, is that 
believe that the solution to Pakistan's internal problems was an end to terrorism. Do you agree with that? Is that a myth to believe? Because the West has been concentrating a lot on that lately. The FATF, um, many other sanctions coming along. Is it is it a myth that the solution to Pakistan's internal problem as we see them today, the economic crisis, the political crisis, is an end to terrorism? Well, I, I, I don't see I don't see ending terrorism as, as an achievable goal in the next five, 10, 20, mm -hmm. 30 years. Given, given the way that the you know the Pakistani government, the military and the, the ISI are set up, I don't think it's something that they they particularly I uh, can control uh, and and have enough influence over. So, but so I mean, so I don't think it's going to happen. But if if the, if the terrorism ended, it would be a major major step forward. It it would it would have a knock on effect in every aspect of society on the economic side, social side, uh, you know, the unity of the country. But it's but it's not something I I, I consider a viable. I don't think it's a realistic proposition at the moment, next 5, 10, 20 years. So you don't think terrorism ending in the coming decade in South Asia? No. And why is that? Is that is that because of unwillingness? Is it because it's 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 it's, it's important to foreign policy of indeed uh, the Pakistan government or the Pakistani military? Uh, why is it? Why don't you see it ending? Well, I mean, again, we, I guess we'd have to def define what sort of terrorism we're talking about because there's about 20 different strands of, of, of terrorism operating in and around the area, um, mm -hmm. you know, all for all for kind of local or regional or, or particular issues. I think I think Pakistan is must bear a lot of the blame for the terrorism it, it's created uh, in, in this region for its own, you know, its own agenda. It's in, in Kashmir or in India uh, or in in Afghanistan. There are no, and this is my Western European hat on, I guess, but there's no, there are no really you know, effective democratic structures in and around the region. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't see any, any, any bodies that, that can come together and, 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 and seriously tackle the issue of terrorism. When, when terrorism is being used by so many governments for, for so many, you know, hidden and, and grey agendas, um, I mean, just just identifying what are the main problems and the causes um, is, is is going to be hard enough. I, 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 it would be, you know, it's like a dream, you know, it's it's a fantasy. Uh, but I, I don't see anything changing. Ten twenty years, I think we'll we'll still be in this sort of area with with you know terrorist factions running around blowing each other up. And uh, so that was a very crude way of expressing it. But I don't, I've, I've, I've it's correct, I guess. Really negative negative sense of the future uh, in this part of the world and it's and it's you know it's partly because the taliban are now in, in charge of afghanistan but it's it goes it goes wider than that obviously do you see other groups becoming bigger than uh in a sense well you don't see terrorism uh going away in this region but do you see it growing you have of course the iskp you have the dedicated taliban pakistan do you see these groups suddenly becoming bigger than they are now or I don't know about suddenly, but but certainly, I mean, I think Islamic State is the one that worries me most. And I know that the, the, the Taliban, you know, I don't want to give them too much credit, but but they are they are very actively and aggressive, 
aggressively targeting ISKP in, in Afghanistan. And it seems to be having some effect. I mean, I've, I've been writing for a while now that I, I was expecting more, you know, looking at the security situation in, in, in Afghanistan and Kabul. And I was, I was for the last you know, few months, I've been saying, you know, I expect terrorism attacks to increase in, in Kabul, you know, around the airport and the government areas. Um, but that, that hasn't really happened. And, and I wonder if it is because the Taliban, at the moment at least, are being moderately effective against ISKP. But I don't think it's necessarily something that the Taliban could can sustain. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so I guess I guess that's where my, my main concern would be. It's it's still the Islamic State operating in the area. Their aspirations are there to to collapse Afghanistan again to bring to bring chaos to bear. That's that's how they operate best in a, in a in a failed state. So so that remains their aspiration. I don't know how they're doing with with recruiting in and around the area, but. It, yeah, I, I still see that as the biggest threat. Do you see the West, as we talked about in the beginning, like you said, the West was suddenly interested in Afghanistan after 9-11. Um, do you see the West becoming interested in Afghanistan, in the region, again, without a 9-11? Well, I mean, well, first of all, yeah, it, if Islamic State or Al Qaeda, and I think it's, I think it's fair to say they they both have a presence in Afghanistan. If either of them were able to to reach out into Europe or America again, because we haven't seen much of that for a few years now, then you would get another strong military, i.e., American uh, response into Afghanistan. But I don't think it would be boots on the ground anymore. I mean, we've, we've seen just from looking at Russia, Ukraine, we've seen the advancement of drone capabilities, you know, going from strength to strength um, to, to get the drones in, to get the missiles in. So you would see, you know, a lot of that sort of military response. Um, it, it, a lot of it, a lot of it depends on what the Taliban do in relation to human rights and women's rights and, and the prospects aren't good and we see all the all the kind of aid agencies and the money that would normally go to afghanistan to help the population is uh is drying up it's much lower and 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 it the tragedy is the aid coming in is much lower but the need of the people is much greater now um with the whole range i mean we're just seeing about the, the flash floods um we're seeing the, you know the economic situation the healthcare situation uh, you know, there are massive, they've got population displacement, they've got food shortages. Um, so the people's needs are greater, but but the, the money coming in is, is lower. Um, I think, yeah, it, it's 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 the it's for the Taliban to shape it. I mean, it, I think otherwise, Brits, Americans, Europeans are going to are going to behave with extreme caution uh, in, in relation to Afghanistan, which is which is a shame because the need is much greater. I would say even the Taliban were in power in 1995 until 2001. And I think the West didn't care then also too much about the human rights situation over there, where we had public beheadings and public executions until and unless, you know, 9-11 happened. But you also think that the Americans and the West would not be interested in Afghanistan just to contain Chinese expansionism? Would, would they let just would, would is the West just content in letting Afghanistan's natural resources just to be 
exploited by the Chinese? I don't know. I don't know how we because um, I, I I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a big. I mean, the big fear with China is is Taiwan right on the other side of the of the, the continent. Um, I, I'm I'm not aware. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not best placed. Uh, I'm I'm not aware that there's there's a, there's concern. I mean, I don't I don't know what you do to thwart China if if China wants to strike deals with the Taliban and start exploiting minerals. I don't think there's much. I mean, the only way, just for taking the Brits, for example, the only way you could do that is, is to engage more closely with the Taliban, more, more directly. And that would that would imply making, I think it would imply making a lot of concessions on human rights and women's rights that, that, that we're not in the mood to do at the moment. Um, but I, but I, I, I don't, I think the main threat with China is, is the Taiwan side of the, of the world, I, th- I think. And, and you might be right. And, and if... If China does get in and start pulling this stuff out of the ground, I mean, we're seeing contracts maybe in a lot of talk. We haven't seen much action. Um, then, then this may, you know, may become more of a problem for for Europe. But I, I just don't really know what you do in a situation like that. If the Taliban and the Chinese are happy, you know, I, I don't know how you really try and prevent that. And coming back to the terrorism issue, you of course said that the Taliban and the Chinese will, you know, deal with the issue of the Uyghurs cautiously. Um, do you see these other groups tapping into that, like the ISKP, like Al Qaeda, into the Uyghur issue to upset? The, yeah, yeah. No, the... so I was trying to work out what your angle was. Yeah, I, I think as. A... IS is, is is maybe the best example, but yeah, if if you can provoke and 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 poke, this is it's a great target. I, I don't know what what IS are doing in regard to the, the Uyghur community. I, I, I don't again, that's an area that I really don't know much about. But but IS in Afghanistan, you know, if you can land a few bombs onto a you know a Chinese facility, that would that would be ideal. I mean I mean IS IS's goal is to is to collapse a state, isn't it? Is to cause a failed state. Because then they can operate with, with impunity. So if you can drive away investment by targeting a Chinese site or, or whoever wants to set up, uh, if, if you can if you can tie down the, the Taliban government, assassinate a few officials, if you can disrupt Chinese investment. I mean, pi- talks about pipelines and railways in Afghanistan have been have been around for, for decades. It was all the talk in the 90s as well. And, and, you know, suddenly nothing's happened, you know, 10, 20, 30 years on. It's because the security situation is volatile. And even when you haven't got major a major conflict going on, it's quite easy to blow up a pipeline or, or, a, or a railway. So they'll never be entirely secure. And that's the sort of once you sorry just which once you've got some solid defined infrastructure like that, it's a it's a nice juicy target for, for any kind of terrorist group. And we've seen it recently, for example, with the TTP and Baloch insurgent groups which have specifically started targeting Chinese infrastructure, Chinese nationals, um, which made the Chinese consider their security situation in, in Pakistan. And I, th- and I think that's, I think and this is back to my, my theme of, of China proceeding quite cautiously, regardless of what the news headlines are saying, I think they will be careful about this, because, um, you know, as soon as their presence is known and developing, like you say in Balochistan, and, and the Chinese, my understanding is the Chinese are not very good cultural sensitivities. So once once you annoy the locals, you make it quite easy for people to you know plant an IED here there or fire a rocket, you know, fire a rocket at, a, at an installation. Um, 
So they'd have to be very cautious, and they would be they'd be an obvious target, a Chinese you know institution, an establishment, a facility. And do you see any role? Because do you see any role in this region, in this great game? Um, because I think that has been not discussed uh, as it should be in international media, uh, which is Iran. Do you see any economic security role for the Iranians here? I, I, I think they don't get uh, enough credit or enough attention um, for the role that they could play in this region. Yeah, yeah. no, you, you, but you're right. I mean, we've just been look, look, looking east and, and, and each time I've, I've looked at the Iranian angle, yeah, they have they, they have a, a tangled and complex relationship with with the with the Taliban. They nearly went to war with the Taliban in the nineties. So you remember that they killed some Iranian diplomats. But for a, for a period of twenty years, there has been again. It depends. It depends on what press reporting you believe. But the Americans were 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 pretty adamant that Iranians were providing IED technology to the Taliban to allow the Taliban to attack. Americans. I think Americans complained about that several times. Uh, maybe that's about that's about ten years ago. There was that there was a theme of reporting that the the, the Iranians are collaborating uh, with the Taliban. So there's a complex relationship. It's it's made worse because Iran is one of the main the main directions for uh, Afghan asylum seekers or refugees, people you know illegally traveling into to um, to seek work. And the Iranians again, they don't they don't treat Afghans particularly nicely on on the border. They kill people, beat them, exploit them. Every, you know, every every month or so, there's some there's some unpleasant report that the the Iranian border guards have have, have, have shot people, or you know, there's there's some kind of human rights abuses going on, uh, which will provoke the Taliban in in the end. Um, but uh, but at the moment, for, for twenty years or so, I think the Iranians they've had some kind of tacit relationship with the Taliban. Uh, you know, basically, they both hate the Americans. So, you know, there's been some kind of kind of cooperation. Now the Americans are gone. Um, I think I think the dynamics will change a bit. We have this issue with the border and the refugees, but also that the, there's also been, I don't know if you pick this up, some disputes about the, the, the use of the, the water and the river, access to waterways uh, down in the south and the Helmand River and such like. Um, so that might that might generate tension. But I don't know. I, you know, it's in both of their interests to cooperate, and they're both. They're, and there's a lot of parallels. I keep thinking about this as well. I know the, you know, it's, it's Sunni Shia, which is different. But, but in many ways, Iran is it's very similar to what to what the Taliban are going to be uh, in Afghanistan. It's 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 a very brutal um, religious dictatorship that, mm -hmm. that that has no. You know, democratic principles. I mean, Iran is more sophisticated. They've got a more sophisticated and educated middle class. Um, but there's a lot of parallels between, I think, you know, the way Iran runs its people and and maybe the way the Taliban will will, will develop. And that's that's which, which it's interesting. You say maybe how the Taliban will develop because most of the Afghan people and also the Afghan experts I've spoken to, they say that. The Taliban won't last in its current form as an administration because it's not used to it. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I mean that's that is the um, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? I mean, and 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 when when the Taliban fell, 
so August, like two years ago, and I had a, a flurry of like news interviews. I, I did, you know, BBC and such like. And I was, I was quite. I always, I mean, I think it's one of my analytical weaknesses that that I, I always kind of assume that there's going to be some kind of slide back into civil war. Uh, and when when Ahmed Massoud, Ahmed Shah Massoud's son, um, announced the NRF National Resistance Front. I think I think several of my interviews, I was quite upbeat. I said, "Well, yeah, this is this is the start of the process by which the Taliban are, are removed." Um, but but on the other hand, I have to remind myself that when when the Taliban were thrown out in 2001, 2001, 2002, they didn't offer any kind of credible insurgency for about five years, four, five, six years. You know, we started noticing this. When the, when the Brits went into, into Helmand in 2005, 2006, it suddenly became apparent there was a lot of Taliban infiltration. And that's when the insurgency you know, went up several, several levels. So it, I, it, it, it's one of the most important angles. And I don't know what the answer is. I, I, I think it's entirely plausible that the Taliban, I mean, they're not, they don't have any of the skills. They don't have any under, understanding of governance. They don't have any tolerance. They're, they're almost, by definition, they're, they're anti-science, knowledge, learning, uh, freedom of expression, uh, using using half the population, you know, rather than locking them away in a house sort of thing. So so every, every kind of part of their, their Taliban's um, appearance as a government is, is massively flawed. And and I and I struggle to see how long it lasts, but and so so it's definitely a, a point we can we can assert. Say maybe five years time, ten years time, I could I could see them going out. I don't know how how they would go. Uh, I I hesitate to say it'll be a civil war again, but it's definitely one of the one of the possibilities. Um, yeah. And what what will then happen to these legacy contracts? These these, uh, you know, the, well, the Chinese ones, yeah, the lithium contracts, the oil contracts. <laughs> well, I mean, it it just it just depends. I mean, there are so many directions it could, it could go in. I don't think the Taliban will just. I I think if the Taliban are going to be thrown out, it would be a very messy conflict probably with the nrf and and americans and and external factors putting putting weapons in and assistance but not many boots on the ground so that might imply this drags out over a long period rather than i mean the, the reason the taliban fell in 2001 was because the americans leaned in very quickly and powerfully with the b-52s you know the cruise missiles um and the taliban cracked and then they fell apart really quickly now, if, if you're not going to get that level of intervention uh, and it's left to NRF and a few other factions, this might be, I mean, it'd be like the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Everyone's expecting a rapid resolution, but it, it could drag on for, for years. If the Chinese have got contracts on the go there, then who knows? Who knows what will happen? I mean, if, 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 if there was some form of marginally democratic government in Afghanistan that... That the international community can support 
you know, there's a, maybe there's a case for saying, well, okay, the, the Chinese signed these contracts and we, and we should honour them, you know, if, as long as they're not corrupted in some way. I mean, maybe you should scrutinise the contracts a bit carefully before you sign up. But if the Chinese have signed contracts, who knows? Maybe, maybe you know, a new government would would be honour bound to to accept them. Okay. No, we have. Uh, I think this is very interesting because we have discussed, of course, uh, one uh, issue which is not discussed that much, which is Iran, and now we have discussed China. Do you still feel, for the, coming back to you know the other neighbors in the neighborhood, um, do you still feel Pakistan is able to pursue its strategic depth policy in Afghanistan? Will it still continue to do? Or... Yeah, whether it can or whether it will continue to try are uh, two radically different concepts. I, th I think it will continue to bring as much influence to bear on the Taliban as it possibly can to make sure there is, inverted commas, a pro-Pakistan government to its west. Now, I, think they, I think they understand that they it doesn't it doesn't work like that. Um, and I remember, let me here's my here's my other book. This this one, this is um, Abdul Salam Zaif's. Sorry, I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Hmm. Um, but he he had some really I mean, he's one of the original Taliban he had some really interesting thoughts on the way the um, the, the relationship was with, with with the Taliban that were inside Pakistan and they obviously had the links and connections to the Pakistani government the ISI and such like but there was a lot of frustrations and tensions because as far as people like Zaif you know the, the key Taliban the, Pakistan, the Pakistanis do not own us. They do not control us. We, you know, we are our own people, and we'll do our own thing. And now the Taliban have have their own country as well. They're not so dependent on safe havens in Pakistan. Um, the Taliban are emboldened. You know, they 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 took over the country in a matter of days. So I think their inclination to to be beholden to Pakistan is is much less than it was. You know, even even just two or three years ago. Um, so so. Pakistan will absolutely, you know, strategic depth. That's it's kind of it's burnt into its its heart and soul for the ISI, isn't it? Um, and and you know, again, this is back to you know, could, if terrorism ended in the region, you know, what, what benefits it would have if 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 Pakistan and India could both become slightly more mature and and, <laughs> and have some serious engagement and and get rid of this you know this this pettiness, um, you know. Who knows what would be possible in the region? But but for the moment, I, 10, 20 years, uh, let's put it this way, 10, 20 years is a very short time in the great game, mm. isn't it? I mean, you know, we've been playing this game for 300 years. Yes. And, and you know, some of the some of the players come and go, but but the themes, the issues are, are still almost identical mm. uh, about the power and influence and resources and access Um and do, do you then see the, the other, not direct neighbor, but uh, next door neighbor with this strategic depth? Because the strategic depth of, 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 of Pakistan is, of course, related to Afghanistan, but it has its larger implications towards uh, India as well. So how do you see India getting dragged into this again? Because, you know, as you know, the both the countries, India and Pakistan, have not been on talking terms for quite a while now. Um, do you that there has been some level, and mo mostly that's because of you know, Pakistan being cash trapped maybe under the radar of the FATF, and of course India's much more assertive, uh, you know, security uh, doctrines which they have adapted, but 
do you see a return to, you know, as you say, terrorism will not end. There is a strategic depth which will be pursued. Do you see India being dragged into that again? Do you see another wave of terrorism directed towards India or Kashmir, maybe? Um, I mean, the short answer is that I don't know. I, I haven't seen anything which suggests there's going to be an upsurge uh, in, in, in terrorism. But, you know, some, sometimes I'm, I generally cut India a little bit of slack. I tend to put most of the blame on Pakistan. Uh, and Pakistan's engagement. In but it would, it would help, of course, if that were to happen, it would, of course, help what we discussed in the beginning, the Chinese position in the region. Um, you know, this, 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 uh, this competition over influence between the Chinese and the Indians, uh, if, if, if India could be again dragged into this conflict with the Pakistanis and terrorism, it would, it would, of course, uh, cement China's position in the region. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but but all, all I can say with certainty, Junaid, is this. This, I mean, it's, it's a great game. It, it never stops. <laughs> it maybe slows in pace a bit and goes in different directions. But yes, you know, China, Pakistan, India. It's going to be continually evolving. People are going to continually poke each other, and Afghanistan. As we've seen many times over the decades, Afghanistan will be a playground for those, for those, those that three-way. I'm, I'm, I'm pointing in the wrong bit of the screen. The, the triangle, the three-way triangle of, of, of India, Pakistan, and China. Um, and my concern is that yeah, Afghanistan will remain a little playground, a part of this this bigger great game. And so it, is, it won't be to Afghanistan's benefit. So. We're coming to the end of this interview, and we've we've discussed the great game, um, and this is maybe you know don't consider it as a trick question. It's not, um, but um, as I've learned, games always have at the end it, it it ends somewhere. There's a winner, and then the game ends. Um, <laughs> is it the same with this game, or is this this is this game just going to be played without an end, without a winner? It's just going to change the actors and maybe a little bit of the geography, but it's going to be continued. The la it's the latter one, Junaid. This 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 never ends. It shapes and mutates. Uh, I mean, th th there's lots of other parts of the world where you can see th these things don't change. You know, you can't you can't change your neighbours, uh, mm -hmm. and and every you know, every country in that region, every every neighbour of the neighbours, they've all got their own. Um, strategic issues they've got their own agendas and I've read some really good analytical books which say if you strip everything down if you look at the the geography of a country the shape of a country the mountains the rivers that you know the, the, the deserts uh, and you look at the resources that it has whether it's forest or agricultural land everything everything comes down to that you are shaped by the type of country that you have the climate the geography the resources and that never that never really changes. So you're always driven by the same issues. Like the, the, the Durand line, it's that, that whole mountain range is going to be there forever. And that's 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 why different groups of people can infiltrate and go backwards and forwards. That's why you have a you have a uh tribes on, on both sides of that. 
and 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 no no amount of and we can blame the British Empire again. No amount of people saying, well, this is this is the Durand line and this is Afghanistan and this is Pakistan. It doesn't matter because the the geography of the place dictates otherwise. You've got you've got different tribes in different groups, and people go backwards and forwards, and people don't recognise it, and that's why you have the friction and the tension. Which, which part is Pakistan? Which part is Afghanistan? And you get smugglers, and more recently you get terrorists going backwards and forwards. Um, the geography doesn't change. So a lot of the strategic issues don't really change. Sometimes the strategic issues change because technology has changed and we no longer want coal, we want oil, and then we don't want oil, we want lithium or something like that. So there'll be some kind of rebalancing. But this is this is this is a game that I mean it never ends. It's 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 a dance, but it's it's the same for the rest of the world. Brexit is is one example of of Britain being an island just off the coast of Europe. And it's mm. it's never been it's never been entirely Europe. And, you know, back in the day, we used to have part of the empire called this place America as well. Mm -hmm. So so part of part of Britain is looking at Europe and part of it is looking west to to America. And Brexit is just another example of us working out our, our great game, our relationship between between Europe and 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 the Americas. You know, that's one way. Of, uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe maybe it isn't that. Maybe I just made that up. But you know, if you look at different parts of the world and look at the geography, you can you can start to understand what the what the strategic drivers are. And in Afghanistan, you look at look at the country itself, what it's made up of, um, how it's evolved with its different ethnic groups, and you look at the neighboring countries and you look at the resources, and you can just say that this that there's no there's no end point. There's no end point that that you know. For a thousand years, this sort of thing will keep going on, and, and actors will come and go, and the resources and priorities will shape a bit. But it's still, you know, so maybe that's too bigger, bigger picture, you know, the next thousand years. But um, I don't, I don't see, you know, in our lifetime any any particularly new end state, unless it, I don't know, I don't know what would achieve that some kind of major peace deal, if you know, if if Afghanistan, if the Taliban were removed from from uh, from governance. And there was a credible democratic government, however flawed, that would go some way towards stabilizing uh, the region, but not by much, I don't think, because Pakistan has still got its problem with depth. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've become, as I've got older, I've become less optimistic about the world, I think. And maybe really. How, how how the world works yeah <laughs> i think the younger people are much more you know there there's this uh idealism which which might take them towards being more optimistic about the future um yeah but that but you, but you absolutely need that though Janine. i mean you know, I, I, i've gone through the process i started off as a young man looking at you know history and politics and international relations with a lot of optimism and i thought that you know the un is a really powerful force it can do a lot of things but but now not just with Afghanistan, and I looked at the, the Balkans as well, and, and and now more recently looking at you know, Eastern Europe, and Belarus, and Ukraine, and Russia. It's 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 so much more messy and complex and uh, and ugly. Um, yeah, like you said, I think all these great games uh, dictated by political interests are going on everywhere, uh, and and also at the UN and and other places. So, indeed, but. Um, like these are still the only, um, you know, places where we can knock the doors and and, and try to to explain and, and make a difference. 
Um, Mr. Foxley, thank you very, very much for this uh, extremely interesting, extremely interesting interview. Uh, I already knew before we started that we're probably not going to get all the answers, um, but at least there is a. At least we have we have tried to you know put in together a thought uh, a thought process of where and why we come to certain conclusions. Um, it 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 for me it has been uh, you know. I think we, we have talked many times, but this is this is one of the very you know most interesting one hour discussion uh, I've sat with you. Well, Janet, well, well, and likewise as well, because I, I I was hoping that you know I wasn't going to talk all the time, and and it, it's been a really good interactive process, and you've you've challenged me and caused me to rack my brains, and there's a lot, and I realise now that there's a lot of things I don't know about, or I need to check up on, or I need to update myself on. Um, well, you so, have a few yeah. months time because after a few months you might be invited again by us to a conference or an event we are doing. So, well, I, I I I remain extremely happy to take part. It's it's been as I say, it's not just me me giving stuff. It's it's you guys pushing me and challenging me, making me think about things in different ways. So, um, you know, it's a it's a classic example of a two way you know two way benefit. Well, thank you very much, and um, we'll speak soon. Yeah. All right. Take care, Janine. Good to see you. See you.